Our next speaker changes direction. Dennis Colson will, uh, is a professor of neurology at the University of Pennsylvania. He will speak on update on neurologic complications in persons with an HIV infection 2017. Dennis. Thank you, John. Thank you, Paul, and all of you for being so attentive all day today. I am going to switch gears quite dramatically from the uh, general uh, style of talks that have been given so far today in talking about the uh, neurologic complications that people living with HIV infection nowadays have to deal with despite rather effective suppressive antiretroviral therapy. And this is important because there's a perception out there that uh, the nervous system isn't much of a problem anymore. And while things are better, certainly in the central nervous system, I want to emphasize and impress upon you that there still are persistent problems that affect quality of life as much as anything. I have no relevant uh, or irrelevant financial affiliations to disclose today. My objectives are, are very straightforward here. First of all, I want to um, have you recognize, be able to list the early neurologic manifestations of acute HIV infection that we in neurology think are very much underappreciated. I want you to be able to describe the chronic neurologic manifestations of um, HIV infection in people on suppressive antiretroviral therapy and to understand the few, albeit limited, but somewhat effective management options we have for these individuals with these problems. And finally, and certainly equally importantly, to be able to describe the rationale for why we need adjunctive neuroprotective strategies for the central nervous system above and beyond what antiretroviral therapy can do in virally suppressed individuals. I think we all understand that in the era of antiretroviral therapy, the neurologic complications of HIV are somewhat less prevalent, certainly much less severe, but nonetheless uh, still persistent. In the pre-art era, about 20% of individuals would die uh, with HIV-associated dementia. It was called AIDS dementia complex in the old days. Associated with that in those individuals was a syndrome of HIV encephalitis, which of course is a post, uh, an, an autopsy diagnosis, pathologic diagnosis. At the same time, individuals would be at high risk for various CNS opportunistic infections, the most common being CMV, toxo, um, and to some degree, PML, which I'll talk about in a minute. Neuropathy was a problem and still is a problem. There are several types of neuropathy that one needs to be aware of. The prevalence prior to antiretroviral therapy of the classic symmetric distal polyneuropathy, the painful burning neuropathy, was about 30 to 40 percent. Nowadays, in the era of antiretroviral therapy, we're still dealing with high prevalence of both uh, CNS and peripheral nervous system manifestations. And interestingly, in individuals on suppressive antiretroviral therapy, for which there still is that really largely understudied problem of viral blipping in this uh, CNS, which is very difficult to study and is of unclear significance. The, the high prevalence of CNS disorders remains as the syndrome of HIV-associated neurocognitive disorders, but without the obviously recognizable dementia, which is only seen in about 2%, 1, 2, 3, 4% by some studies, 
of individuals on suppressive antiretroviral therapy. What we deal with now is a less uh, severe syndrome known as mild neurocognitive disorder, MND, which I'll talk about uh, shortly. Neuropathy prevalence is less than it was in the old days, less than 30% now. Uh, even with the newer ARTs, uh, again, avoiding or moving away from the old uh, D drugs, D4T in particular. One other thing to point out that links very nicely into Steve Greenspoon's talk is the idea that there is persistent systemic and CNS immune activation, oxidative stress, and inflammation, as judged by various biomarker studies in spinal fluid, and particularly, and also in plasma, particularly the one in plasma most uh, closely correlated with cognitive dysfunction would be soluble CD163, a monocyte activation marker. In, in linking to Steve Deek's talk, I just wanted to make a brief point about the entry of, C, of uh, HIV into the CNS. And it's clear by uh, numerous studies now that that occurs early, probably within days to certainly a week or two of systemic infection, systemic inoculation as we would call it. And the transendothelial migration of CD4-infected T lymphocytes into the CNS is probably the major mechanism for entry into the CNS. Once within the CNS, there are evidence now that uh, T cells can set up a compartmentalized reservoir, quote unquote reservoir perhaps, where the virus can evolve independently from that of the plasma. And that seems to occur within, certainly within the first four months or so of uh, systemic infection. Macrophages, um, we believe, do become infected later on during the course. There is ev uh, evidence for evolution of a macrophage tropic phenotype in individuals that appear somewhere within the first two years of infection. And of course, macrophages are known to phagocytose infected lymphocytes in work that came out uh, in the last year or two. Setting up virus rec replication in CNS is associated with elaboration of numerous pro-inflammatory cytokines, neurotoxins, including the excitotoxin glutamate, reactive oxygen species, uh, signs of oxidative stress, which in the days prior to antiretroviral therapy, in those individuals getting HIV encephalitis, there was profound neuronal loss and apoptosis. That's not seen pathologically anymore, but rather what one sees is synaptic pruning and uh, dendritic changes in these cells that are short of cell death, but imply significant neurologic, neuronal physiologic dysfunction. I want to mention this study that I added into these slides because this, I think, has told us something very important. A study published in PLOS in 2015 from Serena Sputich's group, and that is the evidence for compartmentalization in the CNS as judged by spinal fluid studies and in individuals newly acquiring HIV infection. And what this group showed by a single genomic analysis and envelope sequencing was clear evidence for compartmentalization in the CNS uh, within about four months of systemic inoculation, envelope um, evolution genetic changes that are independent from those seen in the plasma, strictly R5 T lymphocytotropic viruses, little independent um, evidence early for independent replication in endogenous CNS cells such as macrophages, but it begins to emerge somewhere about a year and a half after initial infection, you start to see macrophage tropic phenotypes there, and these investigators subsequently conferred the emergence of macrophage tropic viruses in the CNS independently from what's happening in the periphery. 
uh, compartmentalization probably occurs, and it, well, it, it's evidence to occur more commonly in people with high CSF pleocytosis. Infiltrating T cells, bringing virus in, uh, it makes uh, uh, intuitive sense that there would be a higher risk for compartmentalization. And this seems to occur in about 20 to 30 percent of uh, individuals, this compartmentalization within the first two years. And of course, increasing uh, infiltration into the uh, CNS-CSF of infected cells uh, is one way to bring more virus in, and of course, amplifying virus within as, and as yet identified anatomic site within the CNS for T, uh, CD4-positive T lymphocytes is the other means of increasing a viral load in the CSF, which characteristically is at least a log to two logs lower than that in the plasma, certainly in untreated patients. What are the neurologic complications that first arise from this entry of virus into the CNS? And there are two that I think we all should be aware of. Results of primary CNS infection. First is aseptic meningitis, and the second is the acute inflammatory demyelinating polyneuropathy syndrome, which is rare but easily recognizable as classic Guillain-Barre-like Guillain symptoms. Aseptic meningitis. Uh, it's surprising how common this is, this is and how often it's unrecognized. It occurs typically in the first 10 to 20 days after systemic infection in up to 25% of individuals where it's classically symptomatic as headache, fever, stiff neck, self-limited over two to four week period. But it's during that time that individuals are antibody negative. And so these uh, people often go undiagnosed because aseptic meningitis, even by lumbar puncture with the cell count there and high protein, people are sent out of the emergency room or clinic without a discussion about the potential risk for exposure to HIV, which is a mistake that many, um, I think many uh, people make. The second uh, important primary complication of HIV infection entry into the CNS is the Guillain-Barre-like syndrome that is always recognized by neurologists, or should always be recognized, but often is not appreciated um, by many primary caregivers of these individuals. Acute inflammatory demyelinating polyneuropathy is a syndrome that occurs in probably less than 1% of patients, but it's very important to recognize because this can be a life-threatening situation, as can be Guillain-Barre syndrome. It's most often at seroconversion in that three to four week period after initial infection, often following, and you should remember this, following symptoms of aseptic meningitis. It progresses rapidly as a uniphasic illness over days to less than four weeks, typically, just like idiopathic Guillain-Barre syndrome, for which it's indistinguishable, with one exception. Elevation of protein in the spinal fluid without cells is, is typical for Guillain-Barre syndrome, idiopathic. But these individuals, of course, have elevated cell counts in general in the, C, uh, in the CSF. The signs and symptoms are classic. It's an ascending symmetric motor weakness of the distal extremities, ascending rapidly over several weeks. Unlike distal symmetric polyneuropathy in HIV infection, it's not characterized typically by pain, but the risk is respiratory and autonomic dysfunction in up to a third of these individuals, which can be life-threatening. In an HIV-infected individual with uh, this GBS-like syndrome, 
treatment should be the same as for any uh, other individual, regardless of HIV status. Effective treatments are plasmapheresis, gamma globulin that we use, and also there is emerging evidence, albeit limited in comparative, comparative trials, of the effectiveness of short-term corticosteroids in these individuals, which should be considered. And the response rates clinically are probably similar to that of HIV-negative patients. So it can be life-threatening, it has to be recognized, and it's treatable. One of the neur neurologic things we can treat in individuals with HIV infection. The more chronic or later complications that I want to talk about are two other uh, syndromes of neuropathy, one of which I'm sure most, if not all of you, see and perhaps try to treat, and then the problem of CNS dysfunction of HIV-associated neurocognitive disorders. So uh, typically a year or more beyond the initial infection of an individual, one is at risk for a relapsing or consistently progressive form of inflammatory um, demyelinating polyneuropathy, or CIDP, which occurs in, um, in, in greater uh, prevalence than the Guillain-Barre syndrome, it appears later, it tends to progress over several months, typically the same type of, of symptoms, an ascending motor paralysis that can ascend relentlessly and slowly or it can relapse and remit. And these individuals have the same presentation as a Guillain-Barre syndrome type patient. Beware of the motor weakness. Unlike the painful neuropathy that's primarily sensory, this is uh, an ascending motor weakness, also complicated often by respiratory and autonomic insufficiency. Um, autonomic insufficiencies. Treatment and responses are similar to those in HIV-negative individuals, plasmapheresis, IVIG, and there is some evidence that corticosteroids in the chronic form can also be effective. These types of individuals are generally treated by neurologists, of course, for these symptoms and should be referred. This is a demyelinating, remyelinating disease that in peripheral nerve biopsy shows evidence for myelin loss and what we call onion bulb formation, remyelination, as the body tries to repair. The most, most common neuropathic problem in people with HIV infection is the, the classically recognizable DSPN, or distal symmetric polyneuropathy. This is not so treatable, but there is one encouraging study out there that, that may help some of you uh, in considerations for treatment. The natural history of this disorder is one of still relatively high prevalence. It occurs in people with or without antiretroviral use, and so there are thought to be two etiologies for this. Replication of virus in the dorsal root ganglia in the periphery affecting the peripheral nerves, and also potential effects of antiretroviral drugs, which in the old days, the main problem was D4T. But even in, with the use of newer antiretroviral drugs, the prevalence has not decreased all that dramatically. And it remains a mystery why it persists, even in people, the risk persists, even in people with uh, virus suppression. In, contra in contrast to the de uh, demyelinating polyneuropathies, this is characterized by the classic burning pain in the uh, distal extremities, proximal and distal. Um, without motor manifestations for the most part. It's an axonal neuropathy, it's not demyelinating, so it's distinguished easily on nerve conduction studies from the demyelinating neuropathies. It's the classic stocking glove distribution of pain that you're all aware of, and it's often mistaken in people with type 2 diabetes for diabetic neuropathy. 
which is generally always much more insidious, generally always more insidious. How do you treat this? Well, I'm sure all of you, probably all of you have tried, tried this. Classically, um, the use of anti-epileptic drugs, gabapentin, lamotrigine in particular, have been used. Pregabalin has been tested in um, uh, comparative trials. Weak evidence, anecdotal evidence that they may work. But the one thing that has been shown in the literature, which is a little bit surprising, is that high-dose capsaicin, 8% topical uh, to the uh, uh, soles of the feet, the sides of the feet, single applications, which are complicated because it is a, a very dysesthetic agent itself. Single-dose applications have been shown in the study by Dave Simpson um, to provide relief in up to 30 to 40 percent of patients over a 12-week period. So this suggests that several annual treatments may be appropriate for some people, and it is, uh, it is available by prescription. Modifying art regimens, as in all discussions for everything related to HIV control, um, is important for decreasing risk of this, but that's really not that much of an issue nowadays with the limited use of D4Ts. So this question I'd like to present to you. A diabetic man presents to the ED, ascending motor weakness, numbness, uh, a limited for one week. He can't walk now, clear motor problems. He presented with symptoms of a headache, neck stiffness, sounds like aseptic meningitis. He had a lymphocytosis in his spinal fluid, but two weeks ago he was seronegative. He is now seropositive, which is most likely. Uh, you, you can go ahead and vote. I'm sure you're going to get 100% unless you had your head down. There you go. That's pretty good. 5% of you missed that answer that I gave. It's an acute inflammatory demyelinating polyneuropathy. Occurred within a month after seroconversion. The trick is motor, ascending motor weakness, limited sensory uh, in someone who, who is seroconverting. It can be confused with DSPN, which occasionally can present this early uh, within the first few months after seroconversion, but that's distinctly unusual. The syndrome uh, that's not a, that is a central nervous system syndrome. As we move into that now, the, the latter three syndromes is CNS iris or, or immune reconstitution inflammatory syndrome. Why is this important? This is important in all populations because it can occur in any individual who is initiating antiretroviral therapy from a, a state of profound immunosuppression, typically those with low CD4 counts. It's typical uh, in several ways. Uh, of course, you're all aware of systemic immune reconstitution inflammatory syndrome. This is CNS uh, counterpart of that, which is um, most prevalent or most apparent in individuals about one to six months after the initiation of suppressive antiretroviral therapy. It's a CNS syndrome that can be very vague. It can be very mild, headaches, some uh, dizziness to very severe encephalopathy, disorientation, delirium, coma, and stupor. It results from heightened immunologic and inflammatory responses, generally against opportunistic pathogens in the CNS, the three most common being 
TB, history of TB, history of cryptococcal meningitis, and PML, among others. But it also can occur in individuals who expose CNS antigens for other reasons, in the case of head trauma or even stroke, where CNS antigens are, are presented. And that's why it's sometimes missed in people without a history of uh, opportunistic infection. It's diagnosed really by MRI, and I'll show you a couple pictures of that. Ganolinium enhancement on the MRI scan of a large expanding white matter lesion is classic for um, CNS iris, and the nature of the underlying lesion can tell you whether or not there's a risk for a specific opportunistic infection, specifically PML, JC virus. It occurs among all comers, among all HIV-infected individuals of, of all types at a prevalence of about 1% starting antiretroviral therapy, but up to 30% or higher in patients initiating uh, antiretroviral therapy with a history of concurrent or antecedent cryptomeningitis TB or PML. It's associated, of course, with the rapid decline of peripheral viral load, reconstitution of uh, the T cells. It's at greatest risk in people at greatest risk are those with a history of historically low CD4 nators and high viral loads. And this is a picture of HIV-associated CNS iris and an interesting case of a man with no history of opportunistic infection, but a history of a small cortical stroke. He's 57 years old. He was off art for three years and then restarted at the time of presentation in the ER. He did have some neurologic symptoms that were very mild referable to the left parietal region. He was found on diffusion-weighted imaging uh, of the brain MRI of having a small stroke. He was started on antiretroviral therapy, and as he reconstituted somewhat his, uh, his uh, T cells 24 days later and enhancing, this is without gadolinium, this is with gadolinium in this row, his lesion is large, it's characterized by gadolinium enhancement. It's inflamed now. This is not at all typical for evolution of a stroke. One week later, it's still enlarging, expanding, and it's still uh, gadolinium enhancing. This is uh, CNS iris that is not associated with opportunistic infection. It's risky, and, but it's probably treatable, and I'll mention that shortly. Here's a case of a, a man who was 52 years old, art naive for 16 years, never treated, had a four-year history of some cognitive impairment slowly progressing, probably had HIV-associated neurocognitive disorders, which I'm gonna end on, but he acutely worsened over a three-week period. Came into the hospital before antiretroviral therapy, he had an MRI that showed what we now know is a classic PML, JC virus uh, lesion, progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy. At the time, it was non-enhancing, no gadolinium enhancement there. One month post-ART, the lesion is expanding and becoming multifocal now, and that's a key, and it's also gadolinium enhancing. This individual, as he reconstituted to CD4 T cells, got the gadolinium enhancement. He, he did die, and he was confirmed JC virus positive at autopsy. What can you do for someone with uh, iris regardless of the underlying cause. Well, you always, of course, do supportive care, treat the underlying cause, the infection if you have it. For crypto uh, meningitis, and increased intracranial pressure, drain the abscess, sometimes would have ventriculostomy, and 
uh, treat the underlying opportunistic infection goes without saying. Anti-inflammatory treatment with steroids seems to be the only thing that there's a suggestion of in the literature of being helpful. It's not a phase three randomized placebo-controlled study, but there's enough anecdotal evidence and small study reports that suggests that two to three weeks intravenous methylprednisolone for several days up to a week followed by oral prednisone tapers has shown a positive outcomes in a number of patients. No investigational or study drugs have yet proven effective, and there's been a lot that have been tried. Pausing art, is that even feasible? Uh, it's been suggested, it's been used or reported on occasion. It's certainly not something that I don't think, that I think anyone would recommend doing for obvious risk factors in these individuals, but it, it has been discussed. PML itself, uh, to follow up on that lead into PML, why do we care about this uh, as an opportunistic infection? Because it still persists, albeit less commonly than it did in the days prior to antiretroviral therapy. And also because 70 to 80% of us are infected with JC virus. In our multiple sclerosis clinics, we screen all of our patients serologically now. There's a very good antibody test because we have to screen those patients who we put on immunosuppressive therapy. So we know that most of us have the virus in us. Prior to antiretroviral therapy, about 4% of all people, uh, HIV-infected individuals, 4 to 5% would die from PML. Nowadays, the prevalence is approaching, still approaching 1%. Those that get it uh, inexorably perish within about a year, 90% uh, fatal within a year. It's characterized by white matter changes. I showed you one example, I'll show you another, in the brain that's primarily or often predominantly in the occipital lobes, but can be anywhere. And these tend to be large expanding lesions that evolve over time, unlike stroke. I keep mentioning stroke because this is often confused with stroke in individuals, and why is that? because it's most common that it presents with a hemiparesis, but this is not an apoplectic event. It's not a sudden thing. It tends to evolve over several days or weeks or more. But hemiparesis in association with memory loss and slurred speech dysarthria looks very much like a stroke, a slow stroke in evolution. But one of the keys here uh, that's probably gonna be on your exam maybe is that it's often accompanied by seizures. Uh, unlike at a high frequency of 15 to 30%, unlike uh, the classic cortical stroke, and also often visual symptoms, blind spots in the, in the visual fields because of, because of an occipital um, predominance preference. Unfortunately, there's no effective known treatment for this. There have been a number of studies, uh, including um, intrathecal ARIS-C, including uh, cytofavir in the ACTG trials, which have failed to show uh, a beneficial effect. In the uh, multiple sclerosis area, we deal with this. There are over 900 cases in the world now in people with MS who are treated with alpha-4 beta antibody monotherapy where we've seen PML. And in those cases, removing the antibody apheresis to remove the immunosuppressive antibody has let two-thirds of our patients recover from this. We wish we could do the same thing for these infected individuals and reconstitute their immune systems. This is another classic picture. I won't uh, describe any further to you. This is a, a picture of the typical PML. Here, confluent large, sparing the, the gray cortical rim, 
non-enhancing typically, but in, in individuals who have reconstituted their immune systems to some degree, you can see this enhancement around these large white matter lesions. And in this case, would you call this iris potentially? Well, you could call it iris if he had symptoms of encephalopathy and encephalitis here. Uh, but it is uh, due to PML here. So to, to end up uh, this discussion about HIV-associated neurocognitive disorder, something that I'm particularly interested in my lab where we study and try to identify pathways of neurodegeneration and neuropathogenesis and treatments for this, um, it remains, along with DSPN, the most common neurologic complication in the era of antiretroviral therapy. Of course, it's central nervous system um, um, centric, CNS centric. We believe the issue here is the persistence of uh, immune activation, inflammation, and oxidative stress in the central nervous system. Really paralleling what uh, Steve Greenspoon had talked about as being risk factors for accelerated cardiovascular and atherosclerotic disease. Why do we know this? Because many studies have been done with uh, examination of cerebrospinal fluid as well as plasma in individuals with uh, HIV-associated neurocognitive disorders. We know that in the CNS, there's elevations of low molecular weight neurofilament indicating neuronal damage here. Plasma elevations and CNS elevations of soluble CD163 and neopterin markers of uh, monocyte macrophage activation. I will say the best or the only real, um, really confirmed plasma biomarker for risk for this is historically low CD4 nadir. Um, but it seems that soluble CD163 may take its place as well as a biomarker. Um, HIV-associated neurocognitive disorders, to make the diagnosis, it requires neuropsychometric testing called the Frascati criteria. Um, that, are, that are used, uh, formal neuropsychometric testing, and also assessment of the activities of daily living uh, that have to be done by inter uh, interview interrogation. So this is often missed if someone isn't overtly demented. But now in the ART ARV era, while, while dementia is not common, minor neuro neurocognitive disorder is still prevalent in about 20% of individuals. And this is what is bothersome because these People are not, these persons are not overtly demented clearly, but they have functional impairment in certain activities of daily living. So there is morbidity associated with, even uh, with this degree of cognitive dysfunction. Classically, there's no MRI finding that is typical, although about one-third will have lesions in the white matter, distinct from those of PML. So if you see this in an individual that you're following, Neurocognitive assessment is certainly in order there because this, when you do see this, they usually have significant, functionally significant neurocognitive impairment. This was a patient of mine who has the classic HIV-associated dementia with two features here, one being atrophy, enlargement of the ventricles of the brain and the white matter lesions that are periventricularly here. And this individual is part of one of our early ACTG neuroprotective strategies. So to end up, what can we do about reducing hand impairment nowadays, and what do you do to test for it? There's multiple conflicting reports about using ART regimens with increased uh, CNS penetration efficacy, the CPE scale that you may have heard about that was uh, published by Scott Latendra at the HIV Neurobehavioral Research Center. 
there's conflicting reports and it's still being investigated, but there's currently no clear recommendation for altering ART regimens based upon uh, CPE. And there's a concern that art drugs may directly induce oxidative stress and neuronal damage in the CNS. They certainly do in vitro, as has been alluded um, in, in, in other talks. Intensification of art regimen seems to be the current best hope for managing and perhaps decreasing the prevalence of this. Recent studies of Maraviroc um, by uh, Bruce Bruce Group did show over a 12-month period uh, improvement in neurocognitive dysfunction, and there's currently a large ACTG study, ACTG5324, that is intensification with uh, Daltegravir and Maraviroc in patients on suppressive antiretroviral therapy, and that study will be it's about half enrolled, I believe, thus far. So there's some excitement about that. And finally, what about adjunctive therapies in addition to ART? How could we control neuroinflammation and oxidative stress? This is what we think the future is for this disorder. And I'm just going to show one of my lab's uh, uh, pieces of work here to end the talk, and that is uh, uh, what can we do to... To, to study this process in the human brain. We work a lot with brain autopsy. We've studied over 500 brains of individuals dying with HIV infection that are pathologically characterized. And we have found a unique signature, we think, in the brains of individuals with neurocognitive disorders with or without encephalitis. And that's a unique deficiency of a cytoprotective enzyme called hemoxygenase. This is the only neurodegenerative disorder, to our knowledge, where there's a deficiency of a natural endogenous host cytoprotective enzyme in the antioxidant response. So we are pursuing this um, in in vitro and now some primate studies as, as a potential new target. So I'm going to end here just to say the following. We've talked about the acute manifestations. We've talked about the uh, later manifestations, the common neuropathy. Uh, less common neuropathies, iris, hand, and PML, and we're dealing with what we think is not really improving antiretroviral therapy in the CNS, but rather improving adjunctive therapies. That's where we really think our field is going. To end here, a young woman with a three to four day history of confusion disorientation, diagnosed with HIV infection more than three years ago, told she had some kind of brain infection. She was unclear what type. She started and discontinued ART, restarted it two months ago. Examination confirmed altered mental status. Her MRI showed a gadolinium-enhancing lesion in the parietal lobe, no meningeal enhancement. She was currently cryptococcal antigen negative, but had some type of brain infection before. One, two, or three. I hope the answer doesn't come up before I it might. Mm -hmm. Oh, oh, there you go. Started antiretroviral therapy, history of some type of brain infection, clearly immunosuppressed. Iris, 86% of you got it right. That's terrific. And of course, the reason is the timing of it, the initiation of antiretroviral therapy, the antecedent history of opportunistic infection, and an enhancing lesion of the brain. There you go. Thank you very much, and I'd be happy to answer any questions. <laughs>
Dennis, with the obvious increase in cardiovascular disease, uh, carotid artery atherosclerosis, is vascular dementia or vascular disease a, a thing to rule out in these, in these patients with HAND? question is, what about cardiovascular disease and, uh, as a uh, risk factor for hand, basically? And the answer is very much so, yes. As the population ages, those individuals beyond age 50, of course, are at high risk for cardiovascular disease for a number of reasons with HIV infection, and the risk for hand goes up with age. And in individuals with cardiovascular risk problems, cognitive dysfunction alone is at greater prevalence. So. This is why we kind of, we agree so much with the theme that Steve is pressing is that uh, antiretroviral uh, drugs clearly do a lot to suppress and prevent the severity of the hand syndromes, dementia, but correcting the inflammatory risk factors, particularly monocyte macrophage activation, uh, will benefit not only cardiovascular disease, likely, but also decrease risk for neurocognitive disorders in individuals with HIV infection. So we're very much interested in what is good for the systemic circulation, is good for the brain in terms of inflammation. Is there a, a useful office visit way to assess neurocognitive function? This, I knew this test, this question was going to come up, and uh, it always does. Can you do... Uh, can you feasibly do neurocognitive testing in your office practice to identify people who either have or are at risk for it? And the answer is uh, maybe there is something, there are two things that are done that I will tell you about that some of, uh, some of our ID folks are actually doing in their clinic. They're, they're rather crude screens and they're not totally specific for hand, but one is called, and you may be aware of this, is the Montreal Cognitive Assessment, the MOCA. MOCA. It's a 10-minute test. It covers four of the areas that are part of the diagnostic Frascati criteria for hand. It's a pencil and paper uh, test. It requires uh, a test of alphabet copying. It, there's a motor test in it, a type of trail-making test, drawing a box, uh, and a verbal test, and a memory test. It takes 10 minutes, and there are cutoffs of the MOCA. And it's typically used uh, in, in our sh all of our stroke patients, for example. They all routinely get MOCAs on the uh, stroke service before and after. That would be the one test that I would suggest if you had 10 minutes that you could set a person aside. It's not going to make a diagnosis for you, but it's a great test that you could do serially probably every six months. And if and when you see changes, you want to look at the test over time, that should alert you to evolving, perhaps, hand uh, dysfunction. There is also something called a HIV dementia scale that is uh, and has been around and it's been adapted over the last 10 years for international studies. It's, also, it's about a four or five minute test actually and it's somewhat similar. It's sensitive for dementia but it's not sensitive for the milder disorder. The MOCA has about a 60% sensitivity and about an 80% specificity for hand, so it would be the one that would be chosen. 
We're working at Penn, our psychiatry group. We have a large uh, psychiatry P P30 group uh, doing um, uh, in the HIV area. And they have developed a computerized uh, self-administered test battery that takes about 20 minutes. So this is where the field is going with self-administered tests that are culturally designed to be culturally insensitive to, to a bias. And that is being validated in a large study in the Philadelphia area. And so that's where the future is going to be with uh, there's a cognitive states a battery test that is used that is available. This is an adaptation of that called a CNB test that uh, the group at Penn is developing. But in the next several years, that likely is going to emerge as a, uh, as a potential easy to do self-administered thing that patients could do on their own, not even in a clinic in a proper environment. So there are ways to follow this. Is there any role for checking for HIV RNA in the CSF in patients with, H with hand and changing to an antiretroviral therapy that is more easily in, gotten into the CNS. What if you, the question is, what if you uh, surveyed or monitored the cerebrospinal fluid for RNA um, and based uh, changing ART regimens on the basis of that? If, if it is a matter of discordance, uh, plasma to CSF, that's a, a more difficult question to answer than if you meet criteria for changing ARTs in the plasma and it just happens to be paralleled in the spinal fluid. Um, right now, we can't say there is a, a clear, that there is a clear rationale for doing that because um, it's, in, in people on suppressive antiretroviral therapy, at least in the plasma, we still have a, a prevalence of about 10 to 20 percent of viral escape in the, in the uh, CSF, but it's transient up and then down at the next test three, six months later. So if it was persistently elevated on more than one um, uh, spinal tap in the CNS, one would consider and one would look, and not in the plasma, discordant, uh, one would consider uh, looking at those uh, CPE indices on the antiretroviral drugs that the HIV Neurobehavioral Research Center has published, and one could uh, consider switching to a a regimen with a, a higher CPE, but there isn't a controlled study to say that is going to be effective, but people would consider it. Is there a role for corticosteroids in patients who develop iris uh, due to PML and response to PML? Yes. Um, the uh, uh, down at the NINDS at NIH, uh, Avi Nath, who is a director of the neuroimmunology section, is an HIV researcher, and he is the person who has led most of the investigative studies on iris under different conditions, idiopathic, PML-associated, uh, crypto, TB, et cetera. And uh, his general recommendation is that regardless of the source, you treat whatever underlying infection you can. In the case of PML, you can't. But that certainly corticosteroids, these are short-use corticosteroids, four, five, seven days of methylprednisolone and oral prednisone taper, typically over several weeks to a month or so, follow-up imaging to confirm suppression of the enhancement, and then periodic imaging 
thereafter, probably one to three months thereafter. If you get a sustained suppression with a short course like that, uh, and they have seen patients like that, you don't need to worry about immunosuppressive effects of the, of the corticosteroids. The question is long-term use of corticosteroids. Nobody is willing to recommend that without better data, better evidence. Can hydrocephalus be a complication of iris? Have you seen that? It, uh, can hydrocephalus be a complication of iris? It would be a, if you had concurrent uh, obstruction of the outflow of CSF through the arachnoid villa, villi, most commonly with cryptomeningitis, and a person went on to antiretroviral therapy, even treating cryptomeningitis effectively, you can have residual obstruction of the arachnoid villi and, and cerebrospinal fluid outflow. If you uh, treat with corticosteroids there, theoretically you could decrease that risk. I can't say I've ever seen that situation where there was hydrocephalus in a patient that was reported treated uh, with corticosteroids uh, without that hydrocephalus resolving first before the corticosteroids, but theoretically it shouldn't exacerbate it. TB is the other thing that can cause outflow obstructions uh, occasionally with its uh, uh, exudate around the uh, basal meninges and even up over the convexities, but uh, one would still try it and probably put a ventriculostomy in to relieve the pressure if you're concerned about that. That's a, a very benign procedure to do that people tend to be afraid of, but ventriculostomies and shunting in these patients is feasible. Are there any questions from the audience, the, using the microphones? Well, thank you very much, Dennis.